Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partners with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across Australia and the globe to train leaders, develop engagement strategies and empower people to organise for change. And in 2020, we'll continue to work with folks that want to make a difference, inspire, give hope and enable leadership to achieve their shared purpose. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your centre-left political and cultural podcast that dives into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And on this week's episode, we're checking in with our good buddy, Sam Schneidman, who is on the move again. Uh, I think he is now in Massachusetts, but he is talking to us about all things US politics and get an update from him in the ever-changing landscape that is... Um, the US at the moment. So it'd be good to talk to Sam and see how he is going. Um, and don't forget to uh, follow us on all the various podcast apps, podcast uh, apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. And if you are an Apple Podcast user, please leave us a rating and give us a review. And to check in on all the updates, uh, you can follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Um, we're taping this one on a Tuesday morning. Sorry, we didn't get an episode up on um, Friday. Just a little bit busy in Dunn Street world. However, you'll get two for the price of one this week. We'll do an episode today and another one this Friday. We're speaking to uh, Neil Jones, who was a former chief of staff to the Labor leader over in New Zealand. So we'll find out exactly what's going on in New Zealand in the lead up to their general elections later this year. So that should be another good episode to look out for. But let's get to today's episode. <laughs> Okay, we're taping this one on a Tuesday morning in uh, lockdown Melbourne. Uh, and joining me on the line from a less locked down United States, Sam Schneidman. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Stephen? I'm very well. Where are you right now? I am in Nonquid, Massachusetts. Uh, up on the Cape. Pretty close to it. Pretty close to it. But... Most importantly, out of the way of of the path of COVID. Let's uh, let's get into it. Um, it's been a while since we spoke. Well, not really. Maybe a month. I feel like we're just doing this now once a month, just catching up, touching base, getting ever closer to election day. This has been a journey. Trump continues to just confound us and give us more and more material to talk about. So I thought today we could talk. We don't really speak about Trump a lot because we've really been focusing primarily on the primaries and the democratic side of this race. But I thought today we could spend a bit of time just dissecting the crazy world that is Donald J. Trump. Uh, Maybe look at some of the polling that's come out just recently. Probably we're all feeling a little bit more comfortable about um, the chances for the Democrats, both in the presidential and some of the further down the ticket races. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on the Supreme Court and what's happening there. Talk a bit more about COVID and some of the outbreaks in the South and the politics around that. Um, and then maybe wrap up with some stuff about um, the passing of a civil rights giant. But before we do, let's talk about Donald J. Trump. When we Since we last spoke, he's had this Tulsa rally, which was a complete flop, where they were promising that they were going to sell out a 19,000-seater basketball stadium and that there were a million people online wanting tickets and it turned out only 6,000 showed up in red state, Oklahoma, no less, goes to Mount Rushmore for the July 4 weekend, does a speech there, doesn't acknowledge the Black Lives Matter movement at that point, which was one of the, which was the largest national protest that the country had ever seen. I, just, to, just to interrupt, you definitely did acknowledge it, but in the sense where he purposefully ran against, against Black Lives Matter, the movement, and uh, painted it as the enemy of American heritage and traditional identity. I didn't even think he mentioned it. There you go. I must admit, I didn't watch all of it. I'm not going to give Donald Trump 60 minutes of my precious yes, time. You shouldn't. And, you know, the, uh, the references to it were, were clear and hard to miss. <laughs> all right, fine. Rub it in. Um, I'll continue. Uh, uh, Sachs' campaign manager, he and his daughter Ivanka now use the White House as a um, home shopping network to sell Goya beans. 
uh, now adopts this strange new sort of strategy of using the White House uh, and the Rose Garden and the front lawn as a uh, staging location for political rallies. Uh, goes on Fox. New, Fox uh, gets interviewed by Chris Wallace and gets owned. Um, there's been plenty more things that have been happening, but he's now starting to feel the pressure. Um, what, what, ha, what's going through your mind? Sum up the, 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 the last sort of two or three weeks of Trump over this summer period in the United States. Well, I think that Trump is getting hammered because the federal government response uh, to contain uh, COVID-19 has been an undeniable failure. So there have been now over 3 million confirmed infections. We're at 140,000 deaths. 42 million people are unemployed. We've spent trillions of dollars to keep the economy stable to very questionable outcomes with more uncertainty set to be injected into the economy within the next two weeks if Congress doesn't act. Testing has gotten worse and the hospital system has been overwhelmed. So it is, uh, it's impossible to divorce uh, Trump's misfortunes in the polls with our country's misfortunes and in in our inability to uh, contain this virus. The polls that you speak of, um, for those of you that haven't been keeping up to date, I'll just run through a couple of them. The recent sort of round of um, various polling agencies have now got the president trailing the Democratic, the Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, um, Fox have got Biden ahead on the spread by eight points. Uh, ABC, Washington Post has Biden ahead by 10 points. Uh, NBC, Wall Street Journal poll has a Biden ahead by 11 points. And if you break down into some of the state polls, uh, he's ahead in Florida by six and a half. He's ahead in um, uh, Wisconsin by six, Michigan by seven and a half, Pennsylvania by seven, North Carolina by two, Arizona by two and a bit. Um, and they, those polls I've just given you there are the real clear politics averages of all the national polls that have been done in those states. Interestingly enough, the uh, Arizona one, the most recent one, was the New York Times Siena poll, which has Biden hit by seven. So he's really getting hit hard now, not just the national polls. And the national polls, as we know, you know, were always reasonably favourable for Hillary in 2016. Turns out that wasn't the case at a local level. But even the state polling now is starting to show that Trump is getting beaten up by... Uh, by um, voters that are indicating what they're, where they're going to put their vote in November. How much of this, when you look at this, are we done? Like, is this over for Donald Trump? Is he? Is no, he- no, no way, no way. So for everyone who's, you know, I guess over in Australia and looking at the, looking at uh, these polls and thinking that, you know, this is in the bag for Joe Biden, uh, a lot can happen between a lot will happen between now and November 3rd. And we are going to, um, it really just depends on what happens with COVID-19. What does school reopenings look like? America is going to begin to reopen or not reopen its schools in the next three to four weeks, which is going to have a really intense political fallout. How does that impact infection rates? Uh, how does, what does the testing uh, program look like? Are we still waiting seven to 10 days to get our results back uh, in a month? And then uh, what if a Supreme Court justice uh, vacates their seat? That really gets people mobilized and energized. And then what does even the prospect of voting look like as we head into November 3rd? If this disease is running rampant, is still really easily spread uh, in an indoor environment, I think you're going to have a lot of the political wrangling that you see now over school reopenings and the sense that that topic is at a fever pitched fever pitch, you're going to see that same sort of dynamic over the act of voting, 
will the federal government support a massive mail-in voter campaign? Uh, will states move to adopt that as the primary vehicle? What does that mean for the results on election night? A lot of unknowns here. Um, and we know how uh, Donald uh, seems to be able to move from one news cycle to another. And it'll be interesting to see how these polls are impacted. You've raised two interesting uh, topics there. So let's break them down one by one, starting with the school's issue. How is that being played out politically across the country? Um, is, it so, is it as simple as a left-right Democrat-Republican thing? Democrats don't want schools to be opened. Republicans want schools to get opened. Or uh, is it a bit nuanced? Well, there's definitely a, a bit of nuance to it. I mean, I, I don't think that it's... It's really hard for me to say that it's just like a Democrat Republican thing because I think that there is universal consensus among people in this country that we want our schools open. Like this is not, it is not good to not have schools open. The downstream effects from that are very bad, not only for kids, but for parents, the economic fallout from that is really bad. However, there is a lot of concern about what does reopening schools mean for this for the spread of this virus and how does that contribute to a sense of community transmission which we know is really what drives uh, drives uh, our numbers right now and if we don't have systems in place to control the spread of the virus from school uh, at schools, we're going to see a lot of teachers and parents and grandparents begin to suffer the consequences of opening these schools. I think what's also interesting is that I saw a survey recently where one in four teachers in the United States has an underlying medical condition that increases their risk of a very uh, negative outcome with COVID-19. So, there, everyone wants schools to be open, but how we move towards that end goal is something that's being, that is breaking down across partisan lines. I'll give you an example. Uh, the Republican leadership in Congress today went to the White House and they walked out of there with a commitment to tie school funding to reopenings. So in other words, if schools don't, if states don't reopen their schools, the federal government is threatening to withhold funding. The weird thing I'm noticing though, is that, is that uh, reading reports, it sounds like Trump just has lost interest in COVID and dealing with this pandemic period. Like, you know, sort of there's a lot of leaking that's coming out of the White House administration where people are saying that he doesn't – there used to be uh, a daily process where people would report on numbers and what was going on. Um, and he's like, I don't want to hear about it anymore. Um, that he's not meeting with Dr. Fauci and uh, Dr. Blix on a regular basis like he was in the early days. He's like, I don't want to know about it. Like, I want to move on to other things. Um, it's a real worry when you've got a – global pandemic that is crippling your country in the way that it, that you articulated at the start and you have your commander-in-chief who is now saying, I just don't want to even know about it anymore. I just, I'm just walking away from this. I just – like it's sort of – you kind of look towards the states. I mean the, 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 the actual state governors and, and, and legislators to start to do stuff, but then you do that, then it's – you've got the problem of um, you know, what we're seeing in the south is this level of denial by Republican governors and Republican – state legislators that are still... It's not just the South. And this is the point that I've made throughout our conversations on this topic. This virus really doesn't care what your political affiliation is. It's going to attack you whether you're a Republican or whether you're a Democrat. And we've seen that, though recently, some prominent Republican-controlled states have fared badly, that same dynamic is also beginning to play out in democratic controlled states as well. So, and has even at the start, 
I mean, New York is a great example. California is seeing a huge surge and is on the verge of shutting down uh, there again as well. So um, this virus is really exploiting huge uh, challenges that the United States has of economic stratification and uh, political polarization. But it's the re- I guess it's the re- it's the response by government is I guess what I'm going to it it's it's a difficult enough challenge to deal with um, when a government takes appropriate levels, um, let alone when you've got governments that are in denial. Is I guess the point I'm trying to make. Yes, you know California, Washington State, New York. Um, state massachusetts new jersey these are these are democrat strongholds with democrat um usually democrat governors or democrat uh, legislators or or mayors or just government in general and the virus blew up in those places and you know thousands of people lost their lives um but it doesn't help when you've then got other states in the south which probably aren't as heavily populated but you've got governors or Republican legislators that are just, you know, aren't believing in the science, so to speak, for, for example. Um, and we're now start, you're starting to see that, that it's, a, it's really impacting across those communities, which is, which is terrible. Like, a, there's no schadenfreude here. Like, I'm not thinking that this is, you know, you're all getting your just desserts. I, I absolutely don't want to imply that. Um, I think one of the... One of the successes that we've had in Australia is that there's been a uniform approach. There was anyway, and there's certainly, I hope this is still the case, there was a uniform approach, a bipartisan uniform approach by the federal government and the state premiers about how to collectively deal with something that we've never had to deal with before. Whereas in your country, across your 50 states and your federal government, it's just been so inconsistent. Well, yes, absolutely. There is a vacuum of leadership at the top, which we all know the problems that that has created, right? It has, uh, that is the point of failure uh, for, that explains our inability to test and contact trace our way out of this, which is the playbook that every country that has gotten this virus under control has been able to follow. But beyond that, Beyond the vacuum of leadership at the top, I think there is something that is unique to the United States that explains the way that this virus has really gone out of control and which really explains that lack of federal, uh, the lack of federal management and cohesion around a national strategy. And that is the entire political calculus of the modern Republican Party is basically predicated on painting government as this out of control force that is hell bent on taking your rights away stamping out your individual liberties, inflicting upon you unreasonable demands from a elitist small and elitist group of people who are disconnected from the concerns that people face in the real country. And then they also paint government as this perpetually incompetent, large Uh, bureaucracy that is not to be trusted. And that has been the playbook for decades as part of the Republican Party's campaign politics and governing strategy. And what we are seeing with our ability to contain and control this virus here in this country is the chickens coming home to roost on that philosophy and view of government as being ineffective and out to take your rights away, which fundamentally pits people against each other. The second point I wanted to pick up from what you mentioned earlier on before was the, the 
mail-in voting or how are you going to conduct uh, elections in November with the virus still being um, a major threat to people's health and safety. Um, what's been the experience thus far? Because you have been having elections anyway. Obviously, earlier on in the year we talked a lot about the primaries, but th- at that point in time the virus hadn't been um, as um, prevalent. This was sort of you know January, February and early March, and then obviously they suspended a lot of those primaries, but Biden was so far ahead it didn't really matter. But since then you, you have had a number of primaries. Both the Republican Party and the Democrats have run a number of primaries across your various states. Um, what has been the experience there in terms of uh, voter turnout and uh, adjusting to enable people to participate in the democratic process whilst having to be uh, adhering to various state-level restrictions? Well, there's no question that in the United States among voters, there's a strong uh, interest and desire for mail-in voting. Uh, and that was reflected in the primaries that we had recently, where despite a escalating virus situation, we still had uh, turnout that was elevated from four years ago in terms of the that primary. Now, different sort of dynamics at play. However, uh, that I think is is an interesting fact to look out for where turnout especially in Georgia's primary more recently, has meant that the enthusiasm to vote is still there. Now, what we'll be seeing over the next several months is the wrangling at the state level over how that's going to happen come November, how efficiently our ballots going to be sent out, what is the funding that is going to be provided for an increased reliance on mail-in voting, and, but when it comes to mail-in voting, I think what is the most concerning to me is not necessarily our is not necessarily turnout. Is not even are people going to get their ballots? To me, I am most concerned about how is America going to react to the outcome of an election that could very realistically feature a three-day delay on the outcome. So imagine a scenario where on election day, it looks like Donald Trump has won because of turnout on, on the day. However, five or six states are too close to call and the results sort of come in over time, like Three days later, five days later, New York had a primary uh, several ago. Races, those primaries are just now, some of them are just now being called. So that, we all know that Donald Trump has rushed to or has not shied away from questioning the legitimacy of outcomes he doesn't like and aren't in his favor. We have never had that in the United States from a president. We have never gone into an election where the president has cast doubt on the potential outcome. And I, that to me is the, uh, is the biggest uh, concern. Your concern is a, around Trump accepting the result. Is that your concern? Not the fact that Americans are going to have to wait a couple of days to get the result, but just the way that Donald Trump could use that waiting process to argue that this isn't a legitimate result. Is that your concern? That is one deep concern that I have, absolutely. The second concern is, let's say that, you know, he wrangles over the result, but in the end that turns out to be a a sideshow, as with everything else that he does. So a week goes by, two weeks, he's – casting doubts on it, whatever, you know, the democratic process proves resilient enough. And let's say Joe Biden wins and is going to be sworn in. Um, What I worry about is sort of the long-term fallout from that. How does that continue to poison our politics over the next two to four years and drive us further apart and further erode faith in our institutions 
and our ability to self-govern. Yeah, well, I mean, your the Voting Rights Act, I saw a tweet by uh, John Favreau, um, one of the guys that's um, Pod Save America, did a tweet the other day, a thread, about the very first thing that Joe Biden should do when he wins. And he is going to win, Sam, and I'm just telling you that right now. Uh, when he wins in November, that he should uh, introduce to Congress a updated version of the Voting Rights Act named after John Lewis, um, in which basically what he was arguing for was what every other Western liberal democracy has in terms of electoral laws um, that you guys don't seem to have. Uh, did you see that tweet? First of all, I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What was yeah. your what was your what was your th- thoughts on that? Because I mean, that's kind of going to the heart of what you're talking about. Is it? You need to reinstitute faith in your electoral system in order to overcome the challenges that you've just articulated, right? Yeah, certainly we do. We need to reinforce them absolutely, and by reinforcing them, reaffirming our commitment to fair elections. Uh, I thought that a lot of what he put in that tweet, I, I don't have it immediately in front of me, but was was spot on talking about national voter registration, protecting our elections, making sure that there's full and fair funding, ending partisan gerrymandering. Uh, I think a lot of that is definitely uh, you know, a lot of that, but not all of it. Uh, was passed in a bill uh, by the Democrats in the House um, in 2018, but has not moved in the Senate, which of course is controlled by the Republicans. Voting, access to it, and how it is done will forever be a very contentious point of debate in this country. You pointed out that America should adopt this Voting Rights Act uh, in the the spirit of John Lewis uh, to get us up to where every Western democracy is when it comes to to voting. However, the United States has a very sordid history when it comes to uh, voting, particularly around race which makes it much more of a contentious and loaded issue here in this country. Citizenship has always been defined by the ability to vote in this country. And we are going to see evolving debates on that as we move forward. So I certainly think that it should be passed. However, I don't think that that, you know, once it is passed, all our problems go away. These problems are tied to deep structural issues, not only within our society and our politics, but within our history that we haven't fully and honestly dealt with. That's, I don't know, I'm just trying to wrap my brain around what you just said there. I mean, that almost sounds insurmountable, what you're talking about there. And there's only so much lawmakers can do. And I think part of the problem is that because you have ceded electoral laws to your states and that your country is so built upon this, this tension that exists between um, states' rights and the federal government, it makes it harder to get the work done. Um, but, you know, the, the fact that you have 50 different electoral laws across the country to me is insane. Um, so it's yeah, not, it's not it's not ideal, and it should be passed. But what I'm saying is, like, you, but, but, you, but if you fix that, but Sam, if you fix that, like, I know, even that is not easy, right? To take away the rights yeah, of all those no, states no, no. and say, I'm right. saying that doesn't solve all our problems when it comes to that. No, but it sure as hell helps because all of a sudden, you can, a, a central government through legislation can now start to continue to improve how your democracy is conducted as opposed to having to constantly litigate at a state level across all 50 states to bring them all up to speed because the inconsistencies across all those states, I mean, there are some great states. Uh, I sound like Donald Trump now. Some great states out there. There's some great states that are leading the way in 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 enfranchising their citizenry. Um, but sure, then, yes. But then there's some absolute the dra- draconian clarify. states as well, though. And uh, just to try to get those guys up to speed 
seems like an, a, a huge challenge. Yes. What I'm also saying is I, I am sort of uh, telling the story of why it's not such a slam dunk. Yeah. Why I think it's, you know, it, it is a very hard law and set of reforms to pass in this country, though it seems obviously the fair thing to do. Yeah, and as you pointed out at the start there, one of the biggest challenges, there is some legislation that's sitting in the House right now that hasn't been um, reviewed by the Senate, and that is because it is Republican-controlled. At this upcoming election, here is an opportunity, and it's amazing that we're saying this because I think that 12 months ago we didn't think the, the, the Democrats had any chance of taking back the Senate, but fortunes have changed somewhat in this period of uncertainty, and here is an opportunity for the Democrats to actually take back control of Congress and start to do the things that they want to do. Um, do, Let's talk about some of those races that the Democrats, they need to flip three. They need to get a net gain of three uh, Senate spots in November. Um, Let's talk about some of those races right now, if you want. Which ones are you looking at that are the ones that we here in Australia should keep an eye on as we get closer and closer to election day in in November? So if you're, an Australian who has an interest in American politics, I'd be looking especially closely at Colorado, the the Senate races in Colorado, Arizona, Montana, especially Maine, Iowa, and then for uh, more entertaining purposes, Alabama. (laughs) So Maine, we have Senator Susan Collins, the Republican senator who uh, controversial. I'd also add in North Carolina, which I think I forgot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Senator Susan Collins in Maine, she's running against Sarah Gideon, uh, the Democrat, who currently is outright. And I'm going to list a whole bunch of these people who are in the most recent round of fundraising uh, uh, donation uh, period where they have to declare Democratic uh, challenges against these Republican senator incumbents um, have been out fundraising them substantially, which is interesting. Um, senator Susan Collins, the Republican in Maine. Uh, senator Cory Gardner, the Republican in Colorado. You just mentioned Senator Tom Tillis in North Carolina. In Arizona, Senator Martha McSally. Um, and in Montana, Senator Steve Daines are all trailing in um, raising dollars against their Democrat challenges. And this has really got the Republicans shitting themselves and are now starting to divert money away from the, this, this lost cause that is Donald Trump uh, and now trying to defend what they can defend, this last line of defense, which is the Senate. Um, obviously, as you just mentioned there, in Alabama, Doug Jones, who won in a special election. Um, when was that? How, how long ago was that? God, it feels like it was years ago, but it probably wasn't. It was probably only three years ago, two years ago. <laughs> Yeah, 2018. 2018. And Gary Peters in Michigan, they're the two senators that are Democratic senators. Or no, it was a 2017, I think. Yeah, but they're both potential gains for the Republicans. But looking on the current polling, it doesn't look like that's the case. So there's a real chance here for the Democrats to pick up one, two, three, four, five Senate spots if things go well. What are your thoughts on which which races do you favor the most for the Democrats to gain? Uh, I think Arizona. Is looking pretty good for the Democrats, uh, Colorado, and uh, then um, Maine is a real toss-up. However, uh, if I were a Democrat, I'd be pretty sanguine about uh, their chances there. So that's three right off the bat uh, that are looking uh, good for Democrats. From there... uh, you know, it, North Carolina is a real toss-up. So is uh, Montana. And then I'd probably also be feeling uh, okay about Michigan, though it will be competitive. What's going on in this world that we're starting to feel good about picking up a Senate seat in Montana? Well, Montana has had Democratic senators before. Uh, and has one now, John Tester, uh, Max Baucus, who was an architect of the uh, Affordable Care Act, uh, otherwise known as Obamacare, 
was a uh, longtime Democratic senator from Montana. So it's not out of the blue for uh, it being in play. That And the governor who is running there as the Democrat uh, is – so the, the Democratic candidate for Senate in Montana is their current governor, and he's very popular in the state. So uh, – when you couple that with Trump's unpopularity, uh, that that sort of makes sense. It's, um, I mean, it, it's interesting to note states like Colorado, North Carolina, Arizona. Um, talk talk us through the 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 demographic changes that are happening in those states. That means that uh, the chances, the uh, Democrat chances, are looking good there. That means that these states are in play. Totally. So when people talk about Arizona, Texas, and Georgia, especially those three states sort of being in play, the first thing that you'll always hear about is changing demographics in the United States. This country is becoming more diverse and uh, less white, basically. So uh, white people are no longer the majority of people citizens in the country. Um, and uh, that, I think, though, only tells part of the story. So though demographics are changing, and that does play a part in states like Arizona and Georgia and Texas becoming competitive electorally, I think what we're also seeing here is a confluence of two other factors. Number one is, again, the failure of the federal government to contain and control COVID-19. Donald Trump owns this, and he can't figure out how to blame every anybody else. And the Republicans in Congress who have stood by him for so long now are beginning to answer for this by extension. So when you look at our government's failure to contain the virus, which is going especially badly in Arizona and in Texas and in Georgia, coupled with Donald Trump's unpopularity, you're now seeing more and more states become competitive. Now, uh, One thing that's interesting is that Senate races are becoming increasingly tied to the names at the top of the ticket running for president. So in 2016, every state that voted for a Republican senator voted for Trump. And in 2018, all five Senate incumbents who lost were defeated by challengers from parties that carried their state in 2016. So this increased polarization mixed with our government's failure to respond and control COVID-19 explains why uh, some of these traditionally frontier states are uh, competitive and why longtime senators such as Susan Collins in Maine are having a tough time. The other thing I'm loving – about this is that we've started to see some cracks in the in the Republican wall, as in those who who have realised that they're in this awkward situation because they are so reliant they can't distance themselves from Trump publicly because the Trump the the Republican base is so tr- tied to Donald Trump, but at the same time they can't be too close to Donald Trump because of those undecideds and swing voters and independents that they need to get themselves over the line and win these, these Senate races. So they're in this awkward position where they can't come out and distance themselves from Donald Trump, but at the same time they need to be seen to be not too close to Donald Trump because, they, you know, because their electoral fortunes depend upon that. Um, this is a shit sandwich to be in if you're a Republican right now, particularly for people like uh, Susan Collins. And I'm loving this. I'm loving this immensely. Like these, I'm referring to this from this moment on for the last hundred days, this will be the salad days for center left people observing. I know it's not so great for you guys in your own country, but from an outsider's perspective, I'm going to enjoy this ride. This is going to be fun. 
because Trump is going to melt down. Like, you think he's insane well, right now? Well, you know, you have your fun over there. It's a pretty bumpy road over here. <laughs> well, he's insane. And he's going to get more insane. Yes. As he knows that he's going to lose, he's going to get more and more desperate. Just watching him every day in some of these interviews is doing like, and it's also great to watch the Republicans not know, knowing what to do as well. What's, uh, do you share my enthusiasm here, Sam, or are you still trying to be a little bit more, you're still a bit shocked from the Hillary loss. I know that. We all are. But we can call it. It's you know, over. It's done. Donald you know, is going to lose. You're going to take back the Senate. You, the House is gone. Like that is, that is a, don't even worry about the blue wave. You need to stop. You need to stop. You're, <laughs> I'm not, you're, cat, you're jinxing I'm it. I'm not jinxing it. Just call it for what it is. I don't think that it is over and done. Like we have seen so much crazy stuff happen. Let's talk in a month and in two months, and then we'll see. Like, imagine all the crazy shit we're going to be talking about then. Uh, I, we started talking about this in March, you know, yeah. this virus thing. Now, you know, now it's like no one saw it spinning out of control like this. No, no, I agree. And you're right. We are going to be talking about some crazy shit in a month's time because who knows what's going to be around the corner because that's 2020. Here's something else I want to talk about that I know you don't want to talk about because when I texted you the topics that we were going to talk about over the weekend, you said, I do not want to talk about that. So I definitely want to talk about it now. The Lincoln Project, who are a group of uh, former Republican staffers for George W. Bush and for John McCain and Mitt Romney and a whole bunch of other sort of, you know, I guess, establishment Republicans who obviously said enough is enough for Donald Trump. And they're running these... Um, they've set up a pack and they're, they're using their money from that pack to basically pay for a whole bunch of ads that they're putting out online um, and running, I think, in maybe you'll know about this, if they're running it in sort of Washington local news. So basically it's on Trump's TV um, and running these attack ads on Donald Trump and these pro-Joe Biden ads. My question to you is, first of all, why don't you want to talk about it? And two, my follow-up question is, why are rogue Republicans producing better attack ads against Donald Trump than the Democratic National Committee? <laughs> All right. So the reason I didn't want to talk about it is because um, it is definitely it's like such inside baseball. And I, you know, wonder how big of an impact they are truly having. So um, I knew that was the reason why. What's that? I said I knew that was the reason why. I was actually going to lay a bet with myself to say I know exactly why he doesn't want to talk about this. But continue. Look, there's no doubt that they put out some uh, – If you hate Donald Trump, if you hate Republicans, you will eat their content up. No question about it. It's great. It's really good. However, I don't think that's really swinging any votes in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and all that. That being said, I think what is – what – a reason why I think the Lincoln Project in particular is symbolically significant is because you have had such diehard Republicans. I mean, these guys were helped create the modern Republican Party. They ran a lot of the big campaigns, been a part of a lot of their big packs. Uh, they have not only declined to support Donald Trump, they are now supporting Democrats against Republicans. And to me, that tells, that says two things where Donald Trump is, is losing some enthusiasm from uh, hardcore Republicans um, that he's had that helped propel him in 2016, which for him is not good. And then it also points to a bit, more of a uh, broader realignment happening within American politics that I think is worthy of its own social democratic episode with someone far smarter than me. But I think, you know, class is becoming a a bigger issue than uh, necessarily traditional conservative versus liberal. So those two nuggets. These two nuggets. Look, I agree. Uh, is both you and I come from an organizing tradition. Yes, I'm not going to get too excited by a bunch of digital ads in terms of weighing into But they are entertaining. I mean, I, I like sit on there on Twitter. I'm like, ooh, good, more Lincoln Project content. <laughs> oh, look, they're very effective in the, in the kind of moving. Like the one recently without any music 
and it starts off about Donald Trump talking about building a wall, and then it cuts to the wall of um, footage, which is impressive how they've done this, but it's just a wall of coffins. Um, Really, it was like far out, full-on stuff. However, they are doing one thing. They are getting inside the head of Donald Trump. And he Yes, and that has always been their stated goal. Yes. They are moving the furniture around. You know, they are living rent-free in Donald Trump's crazy, fucked up mind. And that <laughs> has got to be what worth insane place. You know, it's got to be worth something. And it works, believe me. Look, I remember running an election campaign uh years ago uh against an opponent who was a bit of a narcissist as well, and we knew that. And what we discovered was through someone from inside their campaign who didn't like this person either. Uh, every time we did a massive mail out that was directly attacking him, he pulled all of his staff off the road to come in and have an emergency meeting to talk about this particular mail out. Now, the mail out wasn't in particularly important to our overall strategy, but it was a part of our strategy, right? And what we discovered was every time we did a mail out attacking him, he took all his campaign staff off the road for like a you know, six hour long meeting to discuss what do we do about this? So what did we start doing? We just started doing mail outs that we were directing it only to him and to some of these friends that we knew that would get that mail out. And what happened every time? Pull everyone off the road again. It was one of the best things we'd ever done. And meanwhile, while he's talking to all his staff about how this is terrible and what can we do, we're out campaigning, talking to voters. So I think it's great that the Lincoln Project is basically getting in Donald Trump's head because I'm sure that Well, I think it that is- was like a key part of uh, why bad Brad Parscale, his former campaign manager, was was dumped because they ran all these ads targeted at Donald Trump talking about how he was using Donald Trump to get rich and famous himself. Yes, I did see that. And apparently one of the lines coming out of the White House was they didn't like the lifestyle that Brad Parscale – what's his surname, Pascal? How do you pronounce that? Pars Parscale. Oh, Pascale. Brad Pascale, they didn't like the lifestyle he was leading. I was like, man, you've really got to be going over the top of Donald Trump's drawing a line in the sand about what kind of lifestyle you're leading. The lead. guy with a gold toilet and a gold penthouse doesn't like the lifestyle that you're leading. That's brilliant. I love it. It's fantastic. It's unbelievable. Anyway, um, quickly turning to um, uh, SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States. Interesting bunch of decisions that have just come out recently. Uh, particularly around native title, around LGBT rights, we're noticing that Chief Justice Roberts, who was a, an appointee under the uh, Bush administration, uh, George W., um, has now started to kind of frame himself as the court's moral centre. Is this a surprise? Is it a surprise? Uh, well, it depends on who you talk to. I think, you know, for the layman, yeah, it's a surprise for sure. It's like, what? How did he, like, do this? Uh how is he like giving us these like liberal victories? Uh, but if you talk to people who really watch the Supreme court, who are uh, attorneys and like, who, um, you know, really follow this stuff, it is actually not that much of a, of a surprise. And the reason for that is because the Supreme court has been politicized to a point where I think it's rarely ever been uh, in this country. And he is really concerned as faith in American institutions erodes, he is concerned about the court's standing among those institutions and whether or not its independence and ability to render decisions that are as divorced from the politics of the case as they can be um, is still something that people believe in. And so I think he, though the outcomes of these cases were, I guess you could say liberal victories, legalistically, his opinions were more conservatively reasoned. Hmm. The most recent one, which which we're all, I actually stayed up till 1am in the morning waiting for the result. And I can't believe I did that. It was absolutely ridiculous. And why I didn't go to sleep and just wait till next morning was the, the, uh, the decision on Donald Trump's uh, releasing his tax uh, records. Yes. Uh, which there was three decisions that they, or two decisions, two or three decisions they had to rule on. One from the New York um, District Attorney's Office, one from Congress or one from the House of Reps. 
um, seeking uh, the, the district of court was seeking uh, that they be released, whereas Congress were just saying we want the records now. Um, from memory, the ruling was that Congress no uh, district court yes. Um, in, 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 seven to two, I think, from memory. So uh, not even really sort of a, a, not a split decision. Um, even some conservative uh, jurists ruling in favour for the New York district. Not only, not only some conservative jurists ruling against him, but one of his, his own appointees ruled against Kavanaugh, him yeah. in it, some pretty high profile profile cases so we, we all get excited for about 20 minutes and then realize that all it meant was though it got sent back to new york in which then trump's lawyers have now submitted or going to submit um more uh, reasoning as to why that, that these shouldn't be released which is going to delay it and most likely we won't get to see trump's records before the next election is that your read on it yeah 100 percent. i think it's unlikely that it's very unlikely that uh, the courts are the reasons why we would ever see Donald Trump's tax returns before no, the election. That being said, I think that the, uh, the, the outcome of those decisions was significant because uh, the Supreme Court unquestionably rejected Donald Trump's argument that at long, as long as he's president, he's immune from p- criminal prosecution. Like, imagine that. Mm. He said, I am president. You cannot prosecute me for any crime while I am president. Uh, and that is significant because traditionally in this country, there is a uh, broad view of presidential immunity. And what what can the president be held liable for while he's president? What can they not be? Um, so... The other reason why this is significant is because though the cases are sent back to the lower courts and there'll be more wrangling over his taxes, Donald Trump is still very much the target of a criminal investigation in the state of New York that the state of that the Manhattan district attorney will not drop regardless of whether he's president or not. And the evidence that is already a matter of public record that suggests he committed fraud and campaign finance violations is, for him, troubling. So uh, he is definitely not out of the woods legally. However, I guess politically, he's sort of found a way to dodge another bullet. My theory is that Joe Biden in the debates uh, shouldn't debate Donald Trump, do not agree to any debates with Donald Trump until he releases all of his tax files uh, records. Now, he's not going to do that. So therefore, that's the point. Because I don't think Joe Biden should bother debating Trump. And I don't think he should bother debating Trump is be, uh, on the basis that Joe's ahead in the polls. Don't fight him in the areas that – don't fight him on the terrain that he likes to, be, likes to do uh, his best campaign work, and that would be, you know, it's rallies and debates. Um, don't, don't debate him. Just stay away from there. And right now, as long as coronavirus is still a problem in the United States, he's less likely to hold these kind of rallies, which then pivots me to my second point. Trump's now started to basically use the Rose Garden as a, a staging location for, for political rallies. What's – how long is this going to last? Like, I'm interested – in the, the best way that the, the the media could deal with that is just not turn up. Now, I know that that's hard. Yeah. But, I mean, we're starting to see that. Like MSNBC are now picking and choosing the bits of any of these kind of press conferences that they want to report on because they know that it's just a – they've learned from 2016. Don't give them a platform. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you asked the question, how long is this going to last? And it's going to last as long as Donald Trump gets free media attention from this, right? However, what we've seen now is – as I mentioned earlier, had this virus not come upon us, it might be something to laugh at. His pugnacity might be something that uh, people even like. However, there's such a human cost now to his lies, his incompetence, and the corruption of his administration that uh, the more he talks, the more damage he does to himself. So 
he stopped giving these daily briefings. However, the geniuses in the West Wing, particularly Kellyanne Conway, suggested that he start these up again. And his first uh, briefing, his, his next briefing is going to be tomorrow at 5 p.m. So I think they're going to keep doing these until they think that like it changes the momentum for him or he stops getting uh, free attention. But the media loves Donald Trump. The media is really drawn to conflict within American politics. And he certainly delivers on that. Let's wrap it up. But before we do, um, sad news coming out of the United States this week was the passing of uh, a giant of the civil rights movement. Representative John Lewis has um, passed. For those of you out there who don't know who he is, Sam, I'll let you give a bit of a background into um, who John Lewis was. John Lewis was an icon in the United States, especially within our politics because of the work he did in the civil rights movement uh, as an organizer helping to lead the march in Selma across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and his unwavering quest for voting rights. And then after he got into Congress, sort of became the conscious of Congress and was always held up as this moral beacon. Um, and unfortunately, he passed away. It's just a, a, particularly in the light of the national movement or national protests across the United States for racial justice at the moment that um, we sort of go back and reflect on the life of John Lewis. I mean, the guy was... was he was a giant. Yeah. A total, like, icon. Original freedom writer of the 13 that yeah, first jumped yeah, on that Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, you know, like, he... He endured so much physical pain to fight for the right to vote and was, was a real uh, leader, not only in the civil rights movement, but the way that he continued that work of leadership and of empowering younger generations and people outside of Congress to keep on that work. And he was famous for the quote of sometimes you've got to get into trouble, good trouble to make change. And he is, his cause was always righteous. And it was really um, poignant that he died right after the Black Lives Matter movement has crested in American politics. Mm. Sam, thanks very much for coming on again today. I know it's sweltering hot and uh, you've done a good job uh, by sitting in your car for this podcast. Good sound too. You've generated some good sound there. I'm really impressed with that. Um, and we'll catch up again. That's why I've done it. We'll, uh, we'll catch up again in uh, at some time next month for our check-in on uh, the insanity that is American politics right now. Look after yourself. Um, and your family, and uh, oh, on a good note, baseball season starts this Saturday or Friday for you. Oh yes, Doctor Fauci throwing out the first pitch for the Nationals. <laughs> is he really? Uh, that is yeah. That is brilliant. That is he's throwing out the first pitch, and there's going to be no fans. Well, that's now we're all going to know what it's like watching uh, the Tampa Bay Rays every week. And and he's going to be throwing out the first pitch. No fans, and last I heard is the local cable channel won't even be broadcasting the game. Why? I don't know. I don't know. I'll, I got to look into that one, but it's crazy. Oh, the local cable channel up in Mass won't be broadcasting. No, no, no. The, this like mid-Atlantic sports network that broadcasts the Nationals and the Orioles, like for some reason, like won't be broadcasting games. It's weird. Oh, that's odd. Oh, well, we can just watch the Red Sox on yeah. Nesson. You can use my login. You're allowed. I'll let you. <laughs> good, good. Well, I'll hit you up for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, lockdown here in Melbourne is six weeks. I was a bit depressed about it, but then when I realized that both baseball was about to start up and the football. And hockey. 
Uh, football season in Scotland's about to kick off again. The basketball's about to kick off. I'm okay. I'm okay now. I'm feeling a lot better about this next six months, six weeks, which probably six months, that's Freudian. That's probably what will happen. But things are going to be a lot easier yeah. this, this time around, I feel. Well, stay safe over there. I will. Good to talk to you and uh, we'll be in touch. Likewise.